You know, we Americans are repulsed by the idea of a king. It's oppressive. It's tyrannical. We value freedom. And we would never yield to the dominance of a single family. But the ancient Israelis, they loved their king. They were royalists. They enjoyed the pomp and circumstance of a monarchy. It was a source of national pride. They took for granted their nation's destiny was largely tied to the decisions of one man and his family, the king. Well, for the next few months, we're going to be studying the king's of Israel and Judah. Three kings ruled over the entire nation of Israel, all 12 tribes. Those were Saul, David, and Solomon. After Solomon, the nation was divided by a civil war. 19 kings then reigned over the northern 10 tribes, which was called Israel, and then 20 kings ruled over the southern tribe, the kingdom of Judah, as it was called. The entire period of history that we call the kings covered about 500 years. In a Hebrew Bible, the four books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are actually considered one book. They call it the kingdoms. Jewish tradition says that it was written by Jeremiah. They weren't actually divided into their present form until around 1516 A.D. Well, you'll remember that 2 Samuel closes in the midst of the history of Israel's greatest king, King David. 1 Kings opens in the waning days of David's rule. And it records the transfer of power from King David to his son and successor Solomon. And as was typical with most of David's family interactions... It was marked by a bloody and painful transition. Well, chapter 1 opens up on a chilly night, a chilly night in the palace, in the king's quarters. Now, King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. You see, David had not really watched his cholesterol. And the old boy had some circulatory problems. Iron poor blood. His body temperature would drop and he'd start to get the shakes. Start to get the shakes. According to 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 4, David was just 70 years old. That's not the older I get, the younger that seems. (laughs) But you got to understand this king had some mileage on him. You remember from his days out in the wilderness on the run from Saul to his many battles. You could say that David had been ridden hard and put up wet more than once. David had lived a grace, graced but a grinding life. Well, the physicians are all called in. What can we do about these shakes? And they prescribe a special comforter to go on David's bed. (laughs) Not a blanket, mind you. How about a beauty? Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our lord the king, and let her stand before the king, and let her care for him, and let her lie in your bosom, that your lord the king may be warm. Now this was actually a recognized medical approach in the ancient world. There was a Greek doctor by the name of Galen who mentioned this remedy in his writings. This was the ancient equivalent of an electric blanket or a thermal quilt. 
lay a hot-looking young woman next to the king to rev up the old boy's body heat. Verse 3, So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very lovely, and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. In other words, the relationship never got sexual. It was just for snuggles. Abishag kept the king warm and served him as sort of a personal nurse. Poor David had a tough time keeping his motor running anyway, so everything was on the up and up. On cold, chilly nights at the Adams house, I'll roll over and I'll whisper to my wife, Honey, be my Abishag. It's a great line. Some of you gentlemen might want to use it. Let me suggest to you that every husband and wife needs to do a little snuggling. It keeps the temperature of the relationship warm and healthy. And unlike David, I got a little circulation left, which makes it even more fun. Ladies, if the king of your castle Ladies, listen to me. If the king of your castle is growing cold or he's getting old, maybe he needs an Abishag to sort of snuggle up next to him and get close to him and stir up some body heat. And hey, trust me, it's a lot less complicated if you do it yourself. I don't recommend you going out and finding someone else. If you're married tonight, I don't want you to forget, snuggles will help you get through the struggles. But I bet you that David wished that he had never snuggled up with Bathsheba, because you remember, that didn't turn out so good. Immediately after his adultery with Bathsheba, God warned David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the sword shall never depart from your house, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And it happened when Amnon was killed by his brother Absalom, both two sons of David. It happened again when Absalom revolted and he died in a failed coup. And now it happens a third time with Absalom's younger brother Adonijah. Let's read about him, verse 5. Well, then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, one of David's wives, exalted himself. Notice that. He exalted himself. Hey, don't do that. Let somebody else exalt. God exalt you. Don't exalt yourself. But he did, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Now, it's true that he was probably next in line to be king. But in Israel, hereditary rights were not absolute. You see, the current successor named the king who would come after him. And the process, of course, could always be trumped by God. Well, rather than waiting for an orderly and legal succession, Adonijah forms this armed militia, and he prepares to take the throne of his father David by force. And here's what haunted David's family over and over again, we're told. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? 
He was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. For whatever reason, David had failed to discipline his kids. He could lead a kingdom, but not his own kids. Perhaps he had been stymied by his own moral failures. Maybe he was too busy with the affairs of state. Maybe he was fearful of pushing them away. Maybe he had an unhealthy need to be liked by his kids. These are all issues that parents have to confront if they want to be good parents. You see, a parent's job is to love his kids enough to rebuke them, to challenge their attitudes as well as their behaviors. You know, there are times when we all need to say to our kids, why have you done so? Like David failed to do here. Why have you done so? Not just what have you done, but why did you do that? It's important to challenge the attitude behind the action. Notice verse 6 says of Adonijah, he was also very good looking, as if that was a concern of David. Maybe the king cared more about appearances than character. Maybe he cared more about his family, quote, looking good than necessarily being good. Oh, David wanted to avoid any ugly confrontations, the kinds of confrontations that discipline sometimes requires. He'd rather let his kids run wild then create a scene. David lacked the moral courage to reel in his kids. He was always giving his sons enough rope to hang themselves. Well, verse 7 says of Adonijah, Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed and they helped Adonijah. David's longtime and faithful general Joab throws in his lot with the usurper Adonijah. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Rei, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the stone of Zoheleth, which is in Enrogel. He also invited all of his brothers, the king's sons, and all of the men of Judah, the king's servants. And he did not invite Nathan the prophet. Beniah, the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. David's court was split in their allegiances. Some sided with Adonijah, some sided with Solomon. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? You see, Nathan knew that God's choice for king was Solomon. And so he recruits the help of Solomon's mother Bathsheba to secure the king's attention. He says, come, please, let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go immediately to King David and say to him, do you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? Then while you are still talking there with the king, I also will come in after you and I'll confirm your words. Hey, let's tag team David. We'll both make our point. So Bathsheba went into the chamber to the king. Now the king was very old and Abishag the Shunammite, his thermal blanket was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. And then the king said, what is your wish? And then she said to him, my Lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. So now look, Adonijah has become king, and now, my lord the king, you do not know about it. 
He has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king. Abiathar the priest, Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he's not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after me. David, your, your indecision here, your silence is deafening. You need to decide this and let us know who's going to reign in your place. Otherwise, it will happen when my Lord the king rests with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. If Adonijah does assume the throne, Bathsheba knows that his first act will be to kill all his potential rivals. This was common among Oriental kings. And of course, that meant Solomon and his mother Bathsheba. Well, just then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet, he also came in. And so they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord, O king, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he's gone down today, and he sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance. And has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And look, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, long live King Adonijah. But he has not invited me, me your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord the king? And you have not told your servant who would sit on the throne of my Lord the king after him? Well, then David answered, and he said, Call Bathsheba to me. And so she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so I certainly will do this day. Solomon's succession will be immediate. David will declare Solomon to be king before he dies. That very day, he'll turn over the throne to Solomon and settle this whole issue. Well, then Bathsheba bowed her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, Let my lord, King David, live forever. A mom is greatly relieved. And what a testimony to the totality of God's forgiveness. You know, if God held grudges, if God kept markers against our former sins, there is no way that the offspring of David and his former adulteress Bathsheba would ever end up heir to God's favor into God's promises. And yet apparently, when God forgives, we really do get to start over. Aren't you glad? Well, verse 32 tells us, And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And so they came before the king. Now David is about to make arrangements for a royal coronation. And each detail is designed to grab the attention of the public and legitimize Solomon's claim to the throne. He says, So the king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride 
on my mule. When people see David's royal servants participating in this parade, and when they see the royal mule out in front, they'll recognize that this is an official coronation. This is a sanctioned proceeding that they're carrying out the king's orders. You see, riding on David's mule is sort of the equivalent of a presidential motorcade. You know, in our culture, a mule is a symbol for stubbornness and ignorance, not royalty. But in Israel, crossbreeding of horses and donkeys was forbidden, and so mules had to be purchased from foreign lands. That means they were no doubt rare, and they were very expensive. Commoners rode only on donkeys. Only the king or royalty could afford mules. Thus, the mule was the royal steed. He says, and take him down to Gihon. The Gihon Spring was Jerusalem's primary water supply. It was south of the city. We have a picture. You see the little fortress down on the southeast side of the city? The little fortress that, that juts out from the wall? Inside that fortress was the Gihon Spring. It was the main water source for Jerusalem. And it was a gathering place. People would sit in the gates of that little portico there. And it was a place where people would come and, and trade and barter and where the elders said and would decide certain cases and all. And so it was a popular public square. It was the perfect place to make a scene and to make sure everyone witnessed Solomon's coronation. Well, there let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon! Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, and he shall be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Verse 36. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, he answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord the king say so too, as the Lord has been with my Lord the king. Even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. In other words, this plan is pleasing to the supporters of Solomon. And so Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and those Cherethites and Pelethites, they were sort of David's secret service, his CIA and FBI agents, you know, spies, secret guys. You know what I mean? Private eyes, those kinds of things. And he had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon down to the spring. Then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. The holy oil from the tabernacle confirmed that Solomon was not just David's choice, but he was also God's choice to be king. And they blew the horn and all the people said, and let's, let's all do it together. Ready? Long live King Solomon. They said it a lot louder than that, though. That was pretty wimpy. You want to do it again? Ready? And all the people said, Long live King Solomon. You bet. And all the people went up after him, and the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy. Notice this. So that the earth seemed to split with the sound. <laughs> we didn't get an earth splitting sound, I hate to say. But they did. And this loud roar erupts from the heart of the city and it reverberates through the walls of Jerusalem. 
Now, though Adonijah had done his best to try to sell himself to the people, the public realized now that Solomon is the right man for the job. Solomon is to be their king. Well, in verse 41, Adonijah's banquet ends on a sour note. You remember, he's got his little coronation party going on in this other place. Well, now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. And when Joab heard the sound of the horn, he said, Why is the city in such a noisy uproar? While he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Abiathar the priest. Adonijah said to him, Oh, come on in, for you're a prominent man, and I know you bring good news. Then Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, Oh, no, <laughs> no good news from me. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. You know this is serious. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise you've heard. Also Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. And moreover, the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and may he make his throne greater than your throne. Then the king bowed himself on the bed. Also the king said thus, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given one to sit on my throne this day, while my eyes see it. David had sanctioned this coronation as well. So all the guests who were with Adonijah, were afraid. And they arose, and each one went his way. Talk about throwing a damper on the party. This is supposed to be Adonijah's coronation. Instead, Solomon steals the thunder, literally. The ground rumbles from the city of Jerusalem. Adonijah never got to deliver his victory speech. His campaign party gets broken up over damaging early returns. And all of Adonijah's supporters abandon him. So interesting. A few minutes earlier, they were ready to pop the champagne. <laughs> but look at him now. Now it's dangerous to be seen with Adonijah. Everybody's running, trying to distance himself from the defeated usurper. Verse 50. Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. Rightly so. So he arose and he went and he took hold of the horns of the altar. Throughout the ancient world, this was the way that an accused man would seek mercy. He would grab the horns of a religious altar. The horns were the sort of the hooks on the end of the altar where the sacrifices were. You know, when they were trying to get the slab of beef up on the altar, they'd sort of hang it over and slap the meat into the horns and into the hooks and then hoist it back up onto the altar. It was a way of preparing the sacrifices, the horns. So he goes in, he grabs the horns of the altar, he's seeking mercy. And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. Solomon is willing to give him a second chance. And so King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar. And he came and fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. Solomon shows amazing grace. This was the guy that wanted to take the throne from Solomon. 
This was the guy that Solomon was afraid that if he took the throne, he would kill him. But now Solomon is willing to forgive him. Show him grace. Show him mercy. Let's be brothers. 1 Kings chapter 2 records the deathbed scene where David utters his final words. An important chapter. And you know, I love these scenes in the movies. You, 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 can you think back on some of these deathbed scenes? They're popular in the movies. I think one of the most famous is from the movie Newt Rockney. Anybody ever seen that movie, Newt Rockney? Dan, you and I have. Ronald Reagan plays the star running back of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. George Gipp is his name. George Gipp. And George Gipp is suffering from a disease. He's on his deathbed. And Newt Rockney comes to visit George Gipp. And George is there dying. And with his dying breath, George Gipp tells the coach, when the team needs a big game and their back is against the wall, tell them, coach, to win one for the Gipper. Now, do you remember that? You ever heard that expression? Win one for the Gipper? What an emotional moment. And that phrase, win one for the Gipper, has now become a rallying cry for Notre Dame football. And what does that have to do with our story? Not much. (laughs) Other than the fact that it's a deathbed scene, and that's what we have right here. Here David utters his last words. He leaves his son Solomon with a challenge. Verse 1. Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. Now, I love these wise words from the old king. And I want every young man in this room to perk up. Listen to what I'm saying. I love what this wise old king says to Solomon. He says, be strong and prove yourself a man. You know, the late author Ed Cole, he once wrote, being a male is a matter of birth. Being a man is a matter of choice. Half the population is male. But to be a man, you have to prove yourself. According to Jewish historian Josephus, Solomon was about 14 years old at the time. Solomon had been born in the palace. His whole life had been surrounded by the perks and the luxuries of royalty. I mean, Solomon had the silver spoon in his mouth, no doubt about it. But now it's time for him to grow up. It's time for him to prove himself a man. You know, every boy wants to be considered a man. But you can tell a boy a million times over that he's a man, and yet in his heart of hearts, he knows that that is not enough. For every boy understands that manhood is not granted. It has to be earned. You have to prove yourself a man. You know, most cultures take this fact into consideration. They have different rites of passage where their young men travel from childhood into manhood, ways that a boy can prove himself a man. Certain Indian tribes used to require a young boy to slay a bear to prove himself a man or to canoe 
a wild river or to brave the elements on a cold night. And yet, how do we today, how does a young man today really prove himself a man? You know, it's sad, but all kinds of sinful tests have been conjured up. Can he hold his liquor? Will he lose his virginity? Is he willing to fight with his fists? As if drunkenness and sex and violence prove yourself a man. Guys, that doesn't prove that you're a man. That just proves that you're stupid. Listen to how David tells Solomon to prove his manhood. Verse 3. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, His judgments, and His testimonies. It is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Here is the test of true manhood. Are you brave enough to obey and follow God? It takes a real man to go against the flow of this world and to resist temptation and to put God first. A real man is strong enough to walk in God's ways and keep His commandments. So what if you're a male? The question is, are you a man? Have you proven yourself a man? David wants Solomon to prove himself a man so that the Lord may fulfill His word which He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Solomon's integrity will ensure the longevity of David's throne. God wants the king to be a man of character. Well, in these next few verses, David instructs his son on how to deal with some of the characters that had been left over from his reign. Solomon is inheriting you know, a whole host of weird people that had attached themselves to David. And David has left behind some loose ends that Solomon now is going to have to tie up. Verse 5, Moreover, you know also what Joab, oh Joab, the son of Zariah did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner, and Amasa the son of Jether. These were potential rivals for Joab, and he killed them. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. Now, David warns Solomon about General Joab. And here's a man who had been loyal to David to a point. The problem, though, is that he had proven more than once that he had his own agenda. And he could be very ruthless in obtaining his goals. It seems that over time, Joab had lost respect for David. And David had lost trust in Joab. And David here is encouraging Solomon to do what he never had the guts to do himself. And that was to deal with Joab. But show kindness to the sons of Brazalel, the Gileadite. And let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Now this Brazilil, you remember, he was that old guy who fed David while he was out in exile away from Jerusalem, on the run from Absalom. 
And here the king commands Solomon to reward his descendants with kindness. I hope you realize that the way you treat others doesn't necessarily determine the way they will treat you. You see, you may be mean, but because you're the boss, your employees will look past your meanness and your rudeness and and they'll be polite to you because you're the boss. You see, how you treat others doesn't necessarily determine how they're going to treat you. But here is the truth. How you treat others will determine how they will treat your descendants or the people who come after you. You see, if you're kind, other people will repay kindness to your descendants. But if you're cruel, the moment you're gone and you're out of the way, They'll take out all of their frustrations they wanted to take out on you. They'll take them out on your predecessor. Verse 8 says, And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Baharim, who cursed me with a malicious curse. Remember Shimei was that guy that came out when David was leaving Jerusalem and came out on the road and started kicking up dirt and yelling curses at David and all. Well, when I went to Mahanaim, but he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. Now, this is interesting. David had promised Shimei that he would be spared, but he now viewed that decision as a mistake. Perhaps in the years after Shimei's pardon, Shimei had failed to live up to the forgiveness that David had showed him. Rather than be grateful, perhaps Shimei had been obnoxious and critical and and just, you know, belligerent. Well, Solomon had made no promises to Shimei. Solomon was free to act on the proper judgment. And so Solomon is encouraged by David to do what in retrospect David failed to do, and that was bring judgment On Shimei. Well, verses 10 through 12 are David's obituary. So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. And the new king begins his reign by cleaning house. Now Adonijah, the son of Hegith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, do you come peaceably? And he said, yeah, peaceably. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, say it. And then he said, you know that the kingdom was mine and all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over. And it's become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Now I ask one petition of you. Do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. Then he said, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as wife. Evidently, Adonijah had been eyeing old David's thermal blanket. She was hot, all right. And he wanted to do a little snuggling himself. And so he asked the king's mother for her hand in marriage. 
And so Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. Why he did that, I'm not sure. So she sat on his right hand. Unless he was a mama's boy, I don't know. Then she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. And so she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as wife. Now Bathsheba saw this as sort of an innocent request. But Solomon sees this in a whole different light. Solomon sees this as another example of insubordination on the part of Adonijah. It's probable now that when they brought Abishag to David, he took her as a concubine. And when a royal court experienced a transition of power, the king's harem usually became the property of the king's successor. This means that if Solomon allowed Adonijah, who was already his older brother now, to marry Abishag, it would be one step further toward bolstering his claim and his right to the throne. And this is why Solomon erupts in anger at Bathsheba for this request. He says, And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also. For he is my older brother, for him and for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord saying, May God do so to me and more also if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore as the Lord lives who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father and who has established a house for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. Priest, who remember was a supporter of Adonijah, the king said, go to Anathoth. In other words, get out of town. To your own fields, for you are deserving of death. But I will not put you to death at this time because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. And so Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. And without realizing it at the time, Solomon here fulfills a 100-year-old prophecy. Very interesting. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapters 2 and 3, there we're told that Eli's sons sinned. And Eli, the high priest, refused to restrain them. And thus, God promised to remove the house of Eli from the office of high priest. Now, Abiathar, fast forward 100 years, Abiathar was a descendant of Eli. And here Solomon takes the priesthood away from the house of Eli and gives it over to another priestly family, the family of a man named Zadok. Both were descendants of Aaron and legitimate priests, but God fulfilled His judgment on Eli. Which just goes to say, if God doesn't 
act today on His promise, it doesn't mean He's forgotten it. Here it takes a hundred years before God's promise to finally find fruition. Well, then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom, the earlier revolt. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. Joab, he he sees that Solomon now is cleaning house. And and he knows that Solomon has the guts to do what David never did. He knows he's next on the list. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. This Benaiah, he must have been a pretty bad dude. He's the sword wielder of the clan. I mean, he's the guy that's exercising the judgment. And so Benaiah, he went to the tabernacle of the Lord and he said to him, Thus says the king, come out. And he said, No, but I will die here. Notice, there is never any indication of repentance on the part of Joab. He never admits that there may have been a time when he overstepped his bounds or acted selfishly or or exhibited pride. Solomon was willing to show mercy where there was repentance. But all that Joab offers is stubbornness and obstinance and pride, and that's what seals his death sentence. You know, it was Spurgeon who pointed out that when faced with death, Joab laid hold of the altar, though there is no evidence that he ever visited the altar before. You see, Joab was a man of war who apparently had very little time for God. He never placed a sacrifice on the altar. He never prayed before the altar. But now, all of a sudden, he rushes to the altar, hoping to find some reprieve. Joab is like the person who's too busy for God, doesn't think about salvation, never darkens the doors of the church in his lifetime. But now all of a sudden, when faced with death, he rushes to the altar, but he never repents. There is no forgiveness for someone unless they're willing to repent. And Benaiah brought back word to the king saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king said to him, Do as he has said, and strike him down dead, and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. And so the Lord will return his blood on his head, because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he, and killed them with the sword, Abner the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. And you remember, Joab also killed Absalom. It was the third person he killed. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and he struck and killed him. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in his place over the army. And the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. And in verse 36, the house cleaning continues. Then the king sent and he called for Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there anywhere. Now David told him to put this guy to death. But here Solomon again wants to show mercy. And so he places Shimei under house arrest. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron 
which was the eastern border of the city, sort of the city limits. If you cross the city limits, know for certain you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. You're fine as long as you stay in your house and stay in Jerusalem, but you leave this city, you try to escape, and we're going to drop you dead. Now here's what happens in the remainder of chapter 2. Just going to abbreviate it for you. Shimei violates his house arrest. He leaves Jerusalem to chase down two runaway slaves. He goes over to the country of the Philistines, to Gath. And when he returns, the king discovers what he's done. And Shimei discovers that the king means what he says. Shimei gets executed. And here's the thought. Jesus called himself a greater than Solomon. And so if Solomon meant what he said, how much more is Jesus a man who means what he says? Guys, when the king says it, you can take it to the bank. Well, chapter 2 ends, Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Now chapter 3 begins, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Now ancient kings believed that the best way to ensure peace with your enemies was to make them your in-laws. Treaties were sealed with marriages. And this is the reason that Solomon ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. His harem was full of princesses, daughters of neighboring kings and rulers. There was one drawback, though, to this practice. Pagan princesses brought with them their pagan gods and their idols. And this was why Deuteronomy 17 prohibited the king of Israel from accumulating wives. Later we'll see that this becomes Solomon's downfall and his many wives do lead him into idolatry. Verse 2 tells us, Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Except... And I wonder if we wrote about your life tonight, you followed the Lord, you walked in His statutes, except what would come afterwards. Something to think about. Well, these high places were Solomon's downfall. You see, Judaism was a highly centralized religion. The only place where you could offer a legitimate sacrifice was on the altar at the tabernacle. These high places, they were altars where they hosted unsanctioned sacrifices. Apparently, in the early days of Solomon, he went to these high places to sacrifice to Yahweh. Later in his life, they would become places where he would sacrifice to his idols. And this is why the high places also were prohibited. They were too easily perverted. Verse 4. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. 
Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. They were all to the Lord. This was a big event. Second Chronicles chapter 1 tells us that Solomon invited everyone in Israel to Gibeon to celebrate this event. This was sort of his inauguration. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, and imagine God saying this to you, ask, what shall I give you? What if God appeared to you in a dream tonight? God said, Sean, just ask me anything and I'll give it to you. Mac, ask me anything and I'll give it to you. Well, how about a PS3? <laughs> What's it called? Is that what it is, a PS3? Video games. Man. Hey, let me ask you. What if God walked up to you tonight and handed you a blank check and said, here you go, guy, fill it in. What would you want? Make a request, any request. And I'll see to it that it becomes a reality. What would you ask for? Gold? Glitz? Girls? Remember, Solomon here, he's just a kid. He's 14 years old. And, and at this point in his life, Solomon is overwhelmed by his new responsibilities as king. You know, he's just taken over for dad. That's David. David left behind quite a legacy. And God has called Solomon now to lead his people, God's people. And Solomon is feeling so inadequate. He's too young. He's inexperienced. He doesn't know what to do. He needs wisdom to handle people justly and mercifully. Years ago, we took our kids to see that movie, Blank Check. You ever seen that movie? Well, it's about a boy who stumbles across a gangster's fortune. And he ends up spending all of the money on his own extravagance and entertainment. But in the end, the kid's blank check, he discovers that he can't buy what he wants most, and that's friendship. You see, rather than ask for money, rather than ask for long life or honor or victory over his enemies, Solomon will ask for wisdom so that he could evaluate situations, so that he can understand people. We're told in verse 6, and Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to me, to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You, God, have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Notice his humility. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Already Solomon is wise enough to know that what really matters is not the size of his bank account or the length of his days or his popularity or victory over his enemies. None of that matters unless he's successful in relationships. 
You understand, you can be the richest person on the planet, but if you're not successful in relationships, how can you be considered a successful person? I don't consider you a successful person if you're not loved by the people you love. Solomon asked for wisdom here. And God was pleased with Solomon's request, for verse 10 tells us the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked for a PS3 or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God not only grants Solomon wisdom and discernment in how to treat others, but he throws in riches and honor and longevity and victory and all the other stuff that Solomon could have asked for but didn't. 1 Kings chapter 3 proves what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. You remember his words. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Be a Solomon. Ask for wisdom. Verse 14, Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. Now in the last half of chapter 3, Solomon gets an opportunity to demonstrate the wisdom that he has acquired from the Lord. He's asked to judge a very difficult case. Now two women who were harlots, came to the king and stood before him. Now, understand up front, neither party has a good reputation. We're not talking about a couple of moral people here, and you can assume they're not very honest. Both these people are prostitutes, and both gals are roommates. One woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. This was tragic. By the way, this is also why an adult should never sleep with an infant. You can roll over on top and smother your child. Be careful. But this was an innocent mistake. Here, though, is where the story becomes sinister. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. 
Then the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. They got a disagreement here. Thus they spoke before the king. And remember, this is before dental records, fingerprints, and DNA, and no baby photos. These two women are living totally by themselves. This is a case of one person's word against another. What's Solomon to do? If you were put in this position, how would you judge? Verse 23, And the king said, The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. I mean, just the mere thought of it. Suddenly her motherly instinct rose up and kicked in and caused her to react. The true mom was willing to drop her claim to save the life of her son. And she said, oh Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. You see, a mother's love will always put her child's welfare ahead of her own. And Solomon was smart enough to know it. Notice this, And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. You know, as a pastor, it seems that I face one impossible decision after another. I've discovered that not all situations are black and white. The answer isn't always clear. Oh, how I need discernment. And I hope you're praying for me. I hope you're asking God to give me wisdom. But the need for wisdom and discernment is not only true for pastors, it's true for parents. It's true for business partners. We all face tough decisions from time to time. And this is what makes James chapter 1, verse 5 such good news for you and me tonight. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You know what that means? It means God has given you a blank check. If you want wisdom, God promises to give you an overabundance of wisdom if you'll just ask.